good morning, everyone. The staff likes to laugh at me sometimes because I get to follow. I do this about once a month, and I usually get to Sundays, okay, it's children's choir, and you get to follow children's choir. Who cares about the preacher after children's choir? (laughs) You know what's only worse than following kids? And somebody spends five minutes up here talking about food. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. (laughs) All right, Uh, we're gonna continue our series, taking a look at encountering Jesus. Uh, Pastor Daniel dealt uh, with the beginning of our series last Sunday as we looked at the story involving the Samaritan woman. And uh, we're going to be looking at, very shortly, at a person very, very different from the Samaritan woman. So I'm going to invite you to go in your Bibles over to John chapter 4, and we're going to be at verse 43 and going through verse 54, all right? Um, We're going to call this the blessings of belief, John 4, verses 43 to 54, And since I taught history for 30-some years, I like to tell stories, so I'm going to open up with a story, true story, if I might, as then we'll go right into the scripture after that. Now, we've all heard the phrase, someone sometimes puts the cart before the horse, meaning that somebody can easily get their priorities wrong. That is definitely true about the man that I'm going to tell you about. His name was John Wesley. And he was a minister back in the 1800s. We'll have a painting done of him shortly that'll be up on the screens. By the way, I'm surprised he sat still long enough for them to actually do this painting. And you'll see why in a moment. Now, you could tell from the way he's dressed, that old style clothing, that this man was a minister. And indeed he was, all right? He had a great start before he even went into ministry. He had godly grandparents. His parents, Samuel and Susanna, both were faithful Christians who taught and lived out the Christian life to their kids. And by the way, speaking of kids, John was the 15th of 18 children. Yeah, you can imagine what Mother's Day must have been like, all right? He was educated for the ministry. He went to school at Oxford University. He actually joined, while he was at Oxford, a group of fellow very serious-minded people, including his brother Charles, who wrote a bazillion different hymns. They called their group the Holy Club because they were very, very serious about living godly lives. Now, I tell you all these things, but there is one thing I haven't told you yet, and that's this. John Wesley did all these things without having a relationship with Jesus. None of it would have done him any good. Now, how did he figure out he did not know Jesus? Wesley volunteered to be a missionary to Native Americans in the new state or new colony, I should say, of Georgia. And as he was traveling by ship across the stormy North Atlantic, 
a huge, huge storm whipped up and the ship was in great danger. All of the English men on this ship, all of the sailors and everyone else, including Wesley, were terrified. There was one group of people though who were not scared. A group of Moravian Christians, never been at sea before, they were praying, they were singing hymns in the middle of this storm. And Wesley was amazed at the peace that they had that he knew he did not have. Wesley arrived in Georgia and to cut his story very short, his ministry was a joke. It was a fiasco. And Wesley had to basically leave ashamed and humiliated. And as he was taking the boat back to his native England, he wrote this in his journal. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He arrived back in London, made friends with a pastor from that same group of Christians, and then, very reluctantly, he went to a meeting one night at Aldersgate Street in London. And this was an outdoor meeting and Wesley was standing there. He didn't really wanna be there, but he agreed to go and there was someone who was reading to the group. They hadn't even got to reading the scripture yet. They were reading actually the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And Wesley was listening as Luther was introducing the message of Romans. And Wesley later wrote this. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He finally had a relationship with Jesus. Now, over the next 40 some years, because Wesley did not go home to Jesus until he was 88 years old, get this, he preached over 40,000 sermons. He traveled on horseback, it's estimated, 250,000 miles. That's going around the circumference of the earth 10 times. Tens of thousands of people were converted to Christ through his ministry. Hundreds of people were trained for ministry, but none of this, none of this would have mattered to Wesley himself if he did not come to belief in Jesus. So, the main point as we look at these 11 verses from John, the main point of the message is simply this. Great blessings follow when we seek and believe in Jesus. Now this is not a complicated passage, all right? It's only 11 verses. I was talking with Pastor Daniel last week and we were kind of joking because I like longer passages. He likes shorter passages. So it's kind of funny. I get the short one, he got the longy, but that's okay, all right? The sermon outline is simple and straightforward, all right? First of all, we have the setting for belief or as we're gonna see, unbelief. 
All right, verses 43 to 45. And then the next section, we see a desperate parent and a great need, all right? And finally, the last four or five verses, we have two responses and finally the result, what happened at the end of the story, all right? So let's first of all go ahead and take a look at the setting for belief or unbelief. So let's read, read with me please, John chapter four, verses 43 to 45. After two days, he, that's Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done at Jerusalem at the feast. For they had gone to the feast. So, reviewing very quickly, immediately before these verses, we're told of Jesus's ministry in the town of Samaria, a town in Samaria. And he actually, we were reminded that it was necessary. It's even stronger than that in some sense. He had to. It was a divine necessity that he go to Samaria because he had an appointment. And the appointment he had was with that woman at the well. And we looked at the conversation the Lord had with her, and then eventually, of course, the ministry included the people that came from her town, that she went back to, people that she had been avoiding before, and told them, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came. Jesus spent two days ministering among the Samaritans, and then he moves on to Galilee. And then we have this strange statement. Jesus himself is being quoted where he says, a prophet has no honor among his own. Now guys, there's three ways that that's strange. First of all, the word honor. This is the only time in the Gospel of John that word, time in Greek, is used. It shows up all the time over in the other three gospels, but never in John. John likes to talk about how Jesus revealed his glory. He revealed his glory as he did his sign miracles, when he changed the water into wine. He revealed his glory when he healed the man who had been born blind. He revealed his glory when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And ultimately, he reveals his glory by going to the cross, dying, but then also is resurrected. All of these things reveal the glory of God in Jesus. But honor is only mentioned here. And the deal is this. This statement that Jesus makes that a prophet is without honor, he makes it in the other three gospels in regards to one particular place, Nazareth. Because it was in his hometown that he was not honored. In Mark chapter six, Mark writes this, verses one to four. He left there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. 
Where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed at his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters with us? So they were offended by him. The Greek word there, translated in English, offended, uh, we get our word scandal from that word. So they were like scandalized by Jesus. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household. But Jesus is not talking about Nazareth in John. Jesus is referring to, because this word can also be translated, home country. He's referring to Galilee. Not just Galilee, but also to the Jews in general. And that seems strange to us because we just read, if you look again at your Bibles, how the Galileans welcomed Jesus. They welcomed him back, so it seems like everything's good. There's a problem. Let me put it to you this way. The only way to rightly honor or glorify Jesus is to correctly understand who he is. That was the problem. The Galileans were welcoming Jesus because they saw the miracles. They had been in Jerusalem back in John chapter two, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus had cleansed the temple, when Jesus had done other miracles and other signs, they had seen all that and they wanted to see more. But Jesus wants people to understand why he does the sign miracles. He wants them to pick up on the significance because they're testifying to who he is. Now a great example of this, if you go over just a few pages, is over in John chapter six, where the Lord has just done the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women plus children. Giving them all this food from just a few fish and some loaves of bread. And if we pick up the story, excuse me, I lost my reference. That's what I get for preaching, not looking at my notes. Oh, there I am. Okay. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your loaves of the bread. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, 
What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you may believe in him who he has sent. Now, before I read the next verse, you gotta remember, this is the very next day after he just fed all of them, thousands of people. And some of those same people are now crowded into the synagogue in Capernaum, his home base. So he just did a miracle. Look what they say in verse 30. So they said, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? What? He just did a work the day before. They want another. My old childhood pastor said what they wanted was a dog and pony show. And Jesus is not interested in becoming just simply a miracle worker. They were not picking up on who he really was. So true belief in Jesus begins when we correctly understand Jesus. And that is absolutely vital because there are all kinds of ideas out there of who Jesus is. Because people kind of try to make Jesus into whatever image, whatever belief they want. And whatever they're constructing most often is not the Jesus of the Gospels. That's why one guy wrote this, they gave him honor of a sort, but it was not the honor due him. Another guy, D.A. Carson, he wrote, miracles, which the Lord did lots of miracles, cannot compel genuine faith. Great example of this is what happened back in the book of Exodus, where beginning in Exodus chapter 20, over to verse 20, or chapter 24, that's where you have the Lord giving the 10 commandments and then the rest of all these commands. And Israel, by the time you get to Exodus 24, Israel tells the Lord and tell, they tell Moses, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Great. They have a closing ceremony. The elders eat a meal in the presence of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in Exodus 24. Moses goes back up on the mountain to get more instructions, and the people are left at the foot of the mountain with Aaron. A lot of you know what happened. We don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron, make us a God that we can worship. They made the golden calf. And Israel would have been destroyed if it hadn't been for Moses interceding for the people. Aaron tried to justify it at one point by saying, we're going to hold a festival to the Lord. We just have this little object over here to help us. No. If we want to worship the Lord, we have to approach him his way according to his direction. Likewise, if we were gonna follow Jesus, we need to follow and correctly understand who Jesus is. Let's go on. Who did, by the way, correctly believe in Jesus? Sadly, it wasn't by and large the Jews. Of all people, it was the Samaritans. 
Because if you look just a few verses ahead, verse 39 of John chapter four, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the only time in John Jesus is called the Savior of the world, and it's not the Jews who figure it out. It's the Samaritans. What happens, sadly, to most of the Jewish nation, John tells us. He writes in John chapter one, verse 11, he came, Jesus came to his own, his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to anyone who did, whether Jew, Samaritan, or non-Jew, like most of us, Gentiles, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right Another word, way to translate that, authority. He gave the right or authority to become children of God. All right, let's go back to our verses. Jesus has now arrived in Galilee. He's once more back at Canaan where he did his miracle sometime earlier of changing the water into wine at that wedding. And the word is getting around that Jesus is back. And this is very, very good news for one absolutely desperate parent. So let's pick it up at verse 49 as we look at a desperate parent and a great need. The official said to him, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Verse 46 to 49. So again, he came to Canaan in Galilee where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Okay, let's focus first of all a little bit on this father. He is completely different from the Samaritan woman. She was a social outcast. Next Sunday, we're gonna be learning about the man who was paralyzed and who had been in that condition for 38 years, all right? He was a physical outcast, unable to help himself. She was a social outcast. This man, however, is from the upper class. He's from the elite. We would call him an aristocrat. He is working, because he's a royal official, he is working for, most likely, the man who rules Galilee. He was called a king, although he really wasn't one, but that's what they called him. His name was Herod Antipas. If you've heard the name, you may remember, he's the same man that later will murder John the Baptist. He is ruthless, and he is totally corrupt. And this guy has to work for him. Now, we're told by John that the official probably lived in Capernaum, all right? And he hears that Jesus is all the way in Canaan. 
So he's going to go up to Canaan. Now, why does it say in our Bibles he goes up? It's because, guys, Capernaum, along with the Sea of Galilee, is 600 feet below sea level. Canaan is 700 feet above or so above sea level. It's a 15 to 20 minute, not 20 minute, 15 to 20 mile trip. You don't travel at night, okay? Because it was extremely unsafe. He had to travel that day. So imagine this. He gets up in the morning, along with his family, checks his son. His son is even sicker. Unless something happens very quickly, this boy is gonna die. And he sets off because he's heard Jesus is back in Galilee. So he gets on his horse as quickly as he can and he's desperately looking for Jesus. He probably almost killed that horse to get there. He arrives just after midday, about one o'clock in the afternoon. And immediately, once he finds Jesus, he begins asking Jesus because you gotta pick up on this, he doesn't ask the Lord just once. In the Greek, the idea, he keeps asking. Lord, you gotta come. You just gotta come. You gotta come over and over and over again. Repeatedly asking. What would we be willing to do to save the life of a loved one? If you think about that, you can understand exactly what's going through this mind of this parent. Jesus is his last hope. A number of years ago, there was a movie that came out, and sadly, it was by and large ignored. It was called Lorenzo's Oil. The movie is based on a true story. These two parents have a little boy named Lorenzo, and when Lorenzo is about 10 years old, he develops a disease. He starts to lose his ability to walk. He starts to lose his eyesight. He's losing his ability to speak. And they're frantic. What do we do? And they took the child to doctor after doctor after doctor. And finally, they found a specialist who said, this is the disease your son has. And I cannot remember or even pronounce the name of it. But what had happened was this. The boy's nervous system was under attack. There was a crucial amino acid that his body could no longer process and he was losing the abilities of his nervous system. They told him, your boy's gonna die. There's nothing we can do. Before that happens, he will be paralyzed, he will be blind, he will be deaf, he will not be able to speak. And what follows is the parents a desperate, desperate effort that went on for a number of years to find what eventually turned out to be a special oil that was made that could not only just arrest the disease but also restore something of Lorenzo's previous condition. You can imagine that what those parents went through is what this father is going through. Psalm 130, verses one and two says this. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Maybe the father was praying something like that as he was traveling. 
And then we see Jesus' response. And frankly, it sounds callous. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. But I changed the ESV just a little bit there. Because Jesus isn't just talking to this man. It's you plural. That's why if you have an NIV or a Christian Standard Version Bible, it says there, you people. Yeah, the Father is standing there, but Jesus is not just talking to the Father. He's talking to all of the Galileans. The Galileans who had repeatedly seen his miracles, and the Lord is just saying, you guys are never going to believe. You just want more stuff. More signs. But, and we need to pick up on this or we'll misunderstand Jesus. His answer is a challenge. It's a test to this father. In other words, the Lord is saying in so many words, are you gonna be just like everybody else? Yeah, you have this great need. Are you just gonna want me to do what you're asking me to do and then not think about who I really am? And that kind of leads to a question for us as well. How do we act when the Lord seems slow to do what we want? Well, I can tell you how I act. It's not pretty. I act like a donkey. (laughs) I get impatient. I'm sure none of you do. Right? Because we already have an idea. We already have a plan of how we want God to respond. Lord, I need you to do this, and here's how I need you to do it. Boom, 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 boom. And Lord says, thank you very much. I have my own ideas. Thank you. Let me show you why it's important to realize how the Lord works when it comes to answering our prayer. Go with me for just a second over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're gonna take a quick look at verses one to eight. This is called the parable of the persistent widow. All right? So I'm gonna start reading Luke 18, verse one. Here we go. And he told them a parable to the effect that he ought, they, the disciples, ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. And afterward he said to himself, although I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, by the way, another way to translate that is not beat me down by her coming, but that she will not hit me. He's afraid he's going to get a black eye, busted nose, next time she shows up. Now, the Lord is not the unrighteous judge. You've got to realize that, okay? Keep reading. And the Lord said, 
Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God does what God's going to do. He's not necessarily going to do it the way we want him to do it. Amen. So coming back to our story, how will the man respond? Well, he doesn't care, this parent, about the other Galileans. He's desperate. So he says to Jesus, sir, Come down before my child dies. The word he uses for child, it refers to a little one. So those of us who still have little ones at home, you know, the little preschooler, a toddler, or grandparents, those little grandchildren, that's like his kid, all right? Helpless, hurting, the parent is desperate. Come down before my child dies. He's humble, he's persistent, he's not going to give up. But guys, he also misunderstands something. Let me put it to you this way. Does Jesus have to be present to answer our need? Yeah, we, we better be thankful that he's not present, okay? That could be very scary. But ordinarily, people in the Gospels thought Jesus had to be there for something to happen. There was actually two people who figured out that he did not have to be there. And interestingly enough, neither one of them were Jews. One was a Roman centurion whose favorite servant was very, very sick on the point of death. And Jesus was actually going to go to this man's house to heal him. And the centurion said, Lord, I don't need you to come to my house. I know that'll make you ritually unclean to come into my house. Don't come. But simply say the word, my servant will be healed. Because I give an order, my men carried it out. You give an order, this disease has to go. And the Lord said, I have not seen such faith anywhere in Israel. And the servant was healed. The other person, she was a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was demonized, who kept following Jesus and the disciples and asking repeatedly for Jesus to save her daughter. And in spite of what seemed like discouragement, it was a test, she wouldn't give up. And Jesus then told her, woman, Great is your faith. And the daughter was healed at that moment. Never limit how the Lord will choose to respond to our need. That's a mistake we can easily make to where we have this need, we think this is how God's gonna answer it and God answers it in a way that we totally do not expect. Great example of this, just the scripture. 
Numbers 11, 23, the Lord answered Moses, is the arms, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Now, the background to this, the Israelites, no surprise, they were complaining again. We're sick of this manna. Manna burgers, manna pancakes, manna matzo balls. We're sick of manna. We want meat. Sounds like Pastor Mark. The Lord tells Moses, you tell him, I'm going to send him meat. I'm going to send him quail. Now, I don't, I don't know. Maybe some of you guys like quail. I would have preferred chicken myself. But anyway. And the Lord tells Moses, you tell him, I'm going to send him enough meat to where it's, I'm going to cover the entire encampment and for miles around with all this quail. And Moses looks at the people and he, looks, he goes back to the Lord and says, Lord, there's 600,000 men plus women plus children. It ain't gonna happen. And that's when the Lord says, is my arm too short? It happened. You read the rest of the story. The quail came in and they were flying about three feet off the ground. All you had to do is just take a club and whack them, Okay. And that's what they did. They just piled up heaps and heaps and heaps of quail, which proved to be a mistake because they had been complaining and bad stuff happens when you complain about the Lord's provision. You know, Mark told me last service, he said, you know, you did good, but you didn't give a personal story. See, he's after me to give a personal story. Daniel's after me to give a personal story. Ah, okay. Here's my personal story that illustrates this. Back there at our facility, room 324 is right over the kitchen. But what many of you don't know is that used to be my office over 30 years ago. The old church, I was pastor of young adults and then I was pastor of adult ministries. That's where I was for a year and a half, perched over that office. It was a lot of fun when they were cooking in the kitchen, I can tell you that. But then, I don't need to go into it, I had to step down. Ended up going into full-time teaching, which is what I did for close to 30 years. And I had to take my books, and those who have been in my study know I have a lot of books. Well, I have a lot more books now than I had then, but it's still a lot. I had to take them all out. I had to put a lot of them in storage. My prayer request for the next three decades plus was, Lord, please, can I have another room that I could use as a study? And I had all kinds of ways for God to answer this, you know, like maybe rent someplace somewhere, get a house with another bedroom, this, that, the other. None of that worked out. What worked out is what has happened the last few years, but especially now. God put me back at the campus of the church, the facility where I grew up, and I have, frankly, the nicest office back in building six. Never limit how God will choose to respond to your need. Now I know, big deal, it's books. It's a big deal to me. Just as your needs are a big deal to you. All right, we gotta keep moving. Let's take a look at two responses and the result. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, 
Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at what hour he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's about one o'clock, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed, and all his household. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. The Lord gives him a simple, blunt answer. Your son will live. But here's the deal. It's spoken by the author of life. Because according to John 1, 4, in him is life. And as he told Martha, standing outside Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will live. Do you believe this? So, Jesus speaks a word. The answer has been delivered. Why does God care? Why does Jesus care? Guys, because he's good. That's why David wrote in Psalm 103, starting at verse two, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jesus says, your son lives, go. The father's, that was Jesus' response. The father's response He has a choice. Will he believe what Jesus just told him without verification? That's the very nature of faith, by the way. That's why we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is the assurance or confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We can see the parent, the father's response. He gets back on his horse and he starts heading back. On the way, his servant meets him. Tells him, your son lives. When was the son healed? At the moment Jesus spoke. And then we're told the father believed. And not just the father believed, his whole household believed. This is like what happened with the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, where he got saved, but so did his entire family as well. And this is the second sign that Jesus did. You see, the first sign, when he changed the water into the wine at the wedding in Canaan, that was transforming a physical object. And it was a sign because it showed that with Jesus, something new was coming, something far greater than what the people had in Old Testament times in Judaism. But this miracle shows that Jesus restores life. Now, 
There is one other word, I think, in Scripture about this father and his family. If you go with me for just a moment to Luke chapter 8, I think this man shows up one other place as we start to wrap things up. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. I think that nobleman is Chusa. He couldn't leave his job because he works for Herod Antipas, a very demanding boss. But if Jesus needs help, and he did, and Jesus has disciples, not just men, but also women disciples, Joanna can go. And so the mother of the healed boy, she's helping Jesus, all right? That's the result, belief and discipleship. Now, as we wrap this up, two final questions I'd like to put to each of us. And I'm gonna use the word you because this is a personal questions, personal questions for each of us. First question we need to ask ourselves from the story is this. Are you willing to seek out and trust Jesus? What we see in this story is a man desperately seeking Jesus who finds him and then trusts in what Jesus says. And the deal is he has to trust without saying. The second question builds off of the first and that is, are you willing to obey Jesus? Trusting and obeying, they have to go together. It doesn't do any good for us to claim that we believe in Jesus if we're not doing what Jesus says. That's why the Lord at one point says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Are you willing to seek out and trust Jesus? And are you willing to obey Jesus? Now, we're gonna have a time for folks to come forward and pray like we always do. So I'm gonna invite our elders and prayer team people to come forward. Whether you wanna come forward for prayer from something on the message or something else, that's fine. You come as God leads and as Rachel plays.